the cover episode number six. I'm joined as always by my co-host on this show, one of my favorite people in the world to talk about wrestling and anything in life, basically, with my birthday brother, Rob Naylor. Rob, we got a great show this week. Hey, yeah, you're going to talk about anything. You're going to pull out a roller derby magazine, aren't you? (laughs) I'm pulling out a a magazine of Word Up. (laughs) Oh, my God. If you pull out a Word Up, that'd be fantastic. With Big Daddy Kane on the cover from 1990. No. Stetson. No, no. Stetson Sonic. Yes. yes. Yeah, EPMD. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. But we're we're trying that joint Aaron, and real quick, I want to thank everybody for all our great feedback that we've gotten so far on our shows. Um, I know a lot of people enjoyed the previous show that uh, Rob uh, hosted and picked out from uh, 1987. Uh, Abadubadavian is uh, becoming a thing now, Rob. <laughs> you know what? If this is like the Conrad shows. We'll do an Abadubadavian shirt, and people will just eat it up. We, I guess we need to start trying to do some merch on this show, maybe. We'll monetize my lack of spelling ability in the mid-'80s. <laughs> yeah, we'll make money off of it. Hell, if Cornette can make money off of his shit, we can make money off ours, can't we? There you but go, anyway. with Abadubadavian. <laughs> yes. J- uh, read and jump to our Sarta. Sarta. Yes, there we go. All right, so Rob doesn't know what magazine I picked. I did that on purpose, make sure that he was going to be surprised as we go on the air. But I kind of mentioned on the last show that maybe 1989 was going to be the year that I picked, and it is. As we go Mm -hmm. to the December 1989 issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, with our cover being... I know what it is. Can I tell you what's on it? I guess. You haven't told me yet. Is it the... Luger's in the wicker chair, and Sid and Muda and, and Sting are on the front. The young and restless. The NWA's future <laughs> is in their hands. <laughs> I love it. I love that I got it right. That is a good magazine for you to pick. Lex Luger sitting in the wicker chair, which is tremendous, with, with a thumbs up. Sid Vicious with uh, his leather gear and shades on, his sunglasses, looking badass. The great Muta, he's in his praying yes. position. And staying in uh, all black with the blue and white face paint flexing. So, yeah, one of the great Fantastic. Uh, sunglasses and chaps, Sid. There yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah, he's badass. Now, also in this uh, magazine, we have the color pinup of Jimmy Superfly Snooker. And our sub-headline here in front of that, when will Beefcake turn against Hogan? Oh, man. Talk about that. And you decide who wins the PWI Dream Tag Tournament semifinals. So, yes, we got that tournament going on here. All right, as we start the magazine off, we got um, we got Between Falls here. Of course, the uh, letters from readers or supposed readers, quote-unquote readers. And uh, we got some interesting uh, letters here. We got uh, one here called The King is Dead. Regarding the article in your 1989, October 1989 issue, Lawler destroys Perez with Atbar's blood money. Does Memphis cheer Atbar too? Lawler's honor and dignity that Andy Rodriguez wrote about are only in the eyes of the Mid-South Coliseum fans. He's a scum of the earth. When I heard that Bam Bam Bigelow turned against Lawler and beat him up in 20 minutes, I was eagerly awaiting to hear a funeral date too. <laughs> that jerk and a half should be buried. And speaking of world class, 
how can I get a copy of that world-class record book and rule book? From what I've seen over the past six months, it shouldn't take me long to read. Signed, Eric McHugh, Tom's Rivers, Tom's River, New Jersey. Hmm. Actually, go ahead. Jerry. Some good quality 80s insults. Jerry Lawler in 89 was a one of those weird, weird birds because you got him in Memphis. Babyface, Jerry Lawler in Memphis up until the end of the year. And on ESPN, world class, whatever, he's, you know, dastardly healed Jerry Lawler. And the thing was at this time that uh, those world class shows were airing in Memphis. So he's having to go on Memphis television and explain why he's acting this way in Texas. You know, isn't that something you should be trying to avoid in a way? I mean, I know it's 1989 and the rest of the world's changing, but still, there's a lot of people that you know, are fully believing, you know, that wrestling is real and they see their hero acting like an asshole on another show. I mean, that's confusing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But thank God it was Lawler because Lawler could somehow have that ability to flip the switch and people would understand. But I knew what, I know what you mean. Like it's anyone, but him would probably have some trouble with that because the whole Tennessee, Texas, thing that that was so ingrained with people too that you know Lawler could explain in an interview in Tennessee that these motherfuckers in Texas are booing him because they're assholes not me you know and, but obviously he's cheating on the show so the people in Tennessee were probably pretty stupid if they still cheered Jerry Lawler but you know in, in wrestling lore I get it and it never bothered me for some reason back in the day when I didn't know any better I was like oh okay makes sense but yeah if I was like 13 or 14 if time i'd have been asking some questions oh yeah now next up is a topic that we've talked about on between the sheets patreon show uh recently no holes barred the movie got a couple letters here about that i just saw no holes barred and i realized only the vincent man hulk hogan used the rest used the wrestling fans they used the wrestlers as well of the money they made on the movie was worth selling what little integrity they had then they had the gall to use various wrestlers recommendations that all Hulk fans should go see the movie. I can't believe Tito Santana could genuinely endorse that piece of garbage unless he was forced into it. As a wrestling fan, I was insulted by the movie. If I were a wrestler, I'd be furious at being portrayed as a dumb, slobbering lummox. Love it. Just so Hogan's character, Rip, would be more appealing. Hogan and McMahon had a, good, had a chance to do some good for wrestling's image, but their apathy for the sport and for the fans have left a bitter taste in my mouth. Signed, Kathy Simmons, Aurora, Colorado. And then we have this one here, short one. After sitting in a nearly empty theater for almost two hours, watching No Holds Barred, I have only one thing to say to Vincent, man. You owe me $6. Signed, Juan Fernandez, Los Angeles. <laughs> wow. Six bucks and 89 is kind of pricey. Uh, so, okay. I don't know if you agree with this. When No Holds Barred, when they first showed the clips of Zeus I thought it was cool but then when Zeus never did a squash match and then when like the magazines came out talking about No Holds Barred I had such a hatred for WWF No Holds Barred and the fact that this goddamn actor was a wrestler because <laughs> I was uh, it was the magazines telling me that I, I should think it sucks why should an actor be a wrestler so yeah I'm, I'm with Kathy there from Colorado I think that uh, the movie was great by the way <laughs> I didn't see the movie till years later. 
so sorry, Zeus. But I, I do like the movie Jockass and all that other fun shit. Jock. Stan Hansen, Tan- Tiny Wanker, and all those other great quips. Uh, but I will say it's easily my favorite Hulk Hogan movie. Not like I make a habit of watching all the Hulk Hogan <laughs> movies. I saw an ad today at the bar for a John Cena movie with little where he's a fireman and it looks like the biggest yeah. piece of shit ever. It would basically make uh, No Holds Barred look like Shawshank Redemption. So uh, <laughs> I'm not going to be smirch Hulk Hogan's at least not this movie. There's other movies that are probably worse. But uh, other well, wrestling movies for sure in recent memory. A lot of those yeah, films like, were not good in the 2000s. Uh, complete garbage. So it's like you got to look back on this as the good old days, even even if you didn't like it back in the time. But yeah, I, I can't say nothing bad about No Holds Part. I will say that I fucking hated Zeus. I hated that he didn't do wimpy matches because uh, that told you he wasn't good. Like if he you wasn't can't, a wrestler, he was just an actor. Yeah, you can't have a good win. B match, like I love to like if, if I ever sat down with Vince McMahon, among the five questions I would ask would be why didn't Zeus have wimpy matches? Because <laughs> my God, that's how as a kid you I liked some of the most dog shit wrestlers ever, Nitron and Giant Gonzalez against Luis Bacoli in 1993. I can name you when it was well, you know, prior to yeah, like if these guys could pull off wimpy matches, how the, even if Zeus came in and wrestled Rico Federico and hit him with two big <laughs> Zeus smashes and then wrenched his neck, I'd still believe it, especially if whoever the job guy was was out of wrestling forever, like the kid in the movie. Like, just have Zeus annihilate a job or end his life or career or whatever. Like, that would have been effective with me. But when he never wrestled, it was just like, eh. And then SummerSlam happened, and, you know, that was... That was cool. Was it? What, it was Macho Man and Zeus, and then they did the cage match, which Hogan and Beast. If anyone out there bought that cage match, God bless you, because that I always felt that had to be the lowest buy rate of all time. But I'm sure there were worse. But at the well, time, I the just movie, was like, you got God. the match in the movie. I mean, come on, <laughs> man, the match. It's like I'm not gonna. My parents are gonna buy me one wrestling match pay per view, even with it. A shitty movie attached to it. So anyway, I yeah, thought, I, I, thought, I always thought Zeus was overexposed. They had him on TV way too much. He didn't come off a special anymore. You know, well, they yeah, just had him way too much. When he Zeus smashed Hogan at the cage and Boss Man, I thought that was effective. Yeah, that was like one of the first times he was on. But then, then he starts appearing on like fucking syndicated wrestling challenge and shit. You know, <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, like we were kids and we enjoyed the interviews as much as the next guy, but eventually you had to get in the ring too. And he's yeah. dead. And then when he wrestled Robocop, it was in another country, and I couldn't see it. So there you go. <laughs> no, so Abdul the Butcher, same thing. <laughs> he wrestled Abdul the Butcher in Puerto Rico on a show with Robocop in 1990 is what I'm trying to say, guys. But <laughs> On YouTube, if you've never seen it, definitely watch yeah, it. Oh, dude, the Medicos against the Rougeaus, I believe it was. The most trash and heat I've ever seen in a wrestling ring. It's incredible. Absolutely. All right, so let's move on to ringside with Bill After. Let's get all the hard news here. Yeah. An era ended in Texas when World Class Championship Wrestling officially changed its name to the United States Wrestling Association. This seemingly signified the end of the Von Erich dynasty with which World Class was so closely associated with. But according to Eric Embry, the man most responsible for the name change, that's far from the truth. The Von Erichs are a great family. They've always been a lot to this state, Embry said. What this name change means is that Max Andrews and USWA controls the federation. 
and Scanner at Martoji Yamamoto don't. That's what this comes down to. And then it talks about Embry's match with P.Y. Chuhai on August the 4th, where Embry represented USWA, Chuhai represented World Class, and uh, Embry won. Then Chris Adams, Tony Fall, Jeff Jarrett, Matt Bourne, Billy True, Travis, Jimmy Jaffont carried Embry on their shoulders and lifted him up so he could tear down the World Class banner. Where Carrie Von Eric said, that was a great moment for all of us. The Federation's in the right hands, and that's the important thing. As for the end of the Von Eric era, well, Kevin and I are still going strong. And Chris is ready to make his debut. The Von Eric era has just begun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, what are your thoughts on uh, the, the, like the, the USWA world-class feud and Eric Embry's rise to prominence here in 89? I didn't like it. Uh, here's why. I was a big, US, big world-class guy. Von Erichs forever. I really liked Michael Hayes' world class in 1988 with uh, Gordy and Blackbird, Iceman Parsons, and Angel of Death, and that I liked it more than everybody else. I guess, even though like I could, I love 88. I, I could see there were less seats filled and all that fun stuff, but like Triple Dome of Terror, uh, I I liked all of it, and then it was just such a drastic change. That it was upsetting to me, but I will say the magazines when I couldn't watch it, the magazines did as good a job as you could have to establish Eric Embry as the new Von Eric, and also establish Py Chuhai, who is someone who I didn't even know who I didn't know who Phil Hickerson really was prior, so I didn't get it. I was like, oh, here's this new guy with his cool white pants and his face paint, and he looks imposing, and a little bastard Tojo Yamamoto's outside, and he's a dick, and. And like Percy Pringle, I think was with Eric Embry, and that yep. iconic picture of them bringing the banner down was cool. And then there'd be things like you just read with Carrie Von Eric basically endorsing it. So if Von Eric's endorsed it; it had to be good. So yeah, I didn't like it because I I, I like the name World Class, but I was open to see where it all went. But the, Eric Embry had like the craziest push of his life that year. He's beating Cactus Jack in twenty seconds. I think he beat. The often uh, referred to on this show, Botswana Beast. I think he defeated him in, a ma- in less than a minute. You know, Ben Peacock. Yes. There you go. Uh, they, the Mambo Warrior, and Kamala Malala, uh, Uganda Kamala too. Yeah, man. He's uh, Atki Malumba. He had a million. Yeah, B- Benjamin J. Peacock. Yeah. Yeah, and he's awesome. We need to get him on the show. But no, he, <laughs> he lost. So all these guys put Embry over, and then Embry. Defeated P.Y. Chuhai, and they all moved forward. But, like, Gary Young was involved, a whole bunch of stuff. So they kept it interesting, but it was very much it. It was it, may, it could have been also titled Eric Ambry Championship Wrestling there for a while, which is well, fine. It's Booker. <laughs> yeah. It drew money. If it draws money, you can't complain too long. Yeah, they, 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 you know, put some, you know, ass in seats in the Sportatorium, and the heat was there for that few. And Michael Hayes did a really good job in 88 of getting everything ready. And then, it, you know, Embry takes over the book and, you know, he changed the feud and puts himself, you know, turns up baby face and makes himself the key figure in, in, the, in the promotion. And it just starts, you know, it moves the promotion to another era and world class becomes more Memphis, you know, Memphis based Memphis style in this era. Can, can I say also, Chris, that we, we need more of that in wrestling? More booking changes? Absolutely. More complete. Like, this isn't even the same show after three months. Exactly. That's what's missing in wrestling altogether. 
Like WWE, WWE is you know, I know Heyman. I mean, we'll, I mean, we'll see. We'll see now that you know Heyman's got his crew now, basically on Raw. What he'll do with with, with the power he has, pretty much, he pretty much has carte blanche right now on Raw. But you look at the rest of WWE and SmackDown stuff like that, even NXT, it's basically the same old shit. You know, it's it's you know, wash, rinse, repeat. You know, there's a lot of stagnant, a lot of staleness. I mean, they've changed some of the look of the shows just a little bit. They've had some different touches on that. But it's just, you know, if you watch WWE now, and you can watch WWE from you know, 2011 or, you know, you, you know even 20, 2009 or whatever, there's still a lot of similarities there yeah and that's why and that's why aw stick you know sticks out like a sore thumb right now because it is different and they are doing stuff that WWE's not doing and they're presenting wrestling in a different way using you know different talent and that's important um i think with contracts it's harder to do what we're wanting but also oh yeah i know wb's got three different brands or whatever now right so it's like how the fuck yeah how does NXT have like the same guys in the takeover matches for like a year now? You know what I mean? Like I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess I kind of understand it because it is episodic and people that like it probably want. Well, you got power struggles now. I mean, yeah. Back in the old day, back in the old days, I mean, bookers would change out, you know. But you know, I mean, we could also say too that, God, listen, you know, we we idolize Dusty Rhodes. I mean, we do. We love Dusty Rhodes. But Dusty Rhodes in 1988 was burnt out. I mean, his booking wasn't working anymore in a lot business-wise. You know, it was probably time to make a change by that point in time. I mean, there, there's stuff you there's, that you can't you can't ride the same horse forever. You know, you have to change horses and jockeys. Yeah, I was gonna say like. If you look at 88 NWA and 89 NWA and only oh God. WA and then 91 and WCW Dusty's back and then 92, it's K. Allen Fry and, and 93, it's Bill Watt. Like each one of those things, when you think about each year of that federation, whole different visuals and every year and, and talent all, you know, come into your head. And, you know, that was when, you know, everyone wasn't contracted. It was per appearance a lot of the time. So you're going to have guys in and out but i i do miss that aspect of wrestling where it's just like you could just fluctuate talent in and out and it was just oh yeah i mean you got guys going on japanese tours so they're taking breaks you do injury angles i mean i think goddamn danny spivey was in every one of the things i just said because he was in and out (laughs) and like he'd come back with like pink zebra tights and red boots and then he'd come back with like regular you know black trunks so yeah you're right it's just funny how it worked out like that and you almost can't even remember when danny spivey was there and when he left again because it was like every year it's really funny to think about that chris like legit danny spivey was in 89 as varsity club georgia bulldog danny spivey 90 he's a skyscraper 91 he's attacking luger at a clash 92 he's back in the summertime right when before ron simmons gets crowned as the champion and he's just hanging out and then like 93 i think he was finally gone forever but it's just it's really funny to think of him in that vein (laughs) absolutely yeah i mean you know i mean he keeps he keeps coming back, but you know he's still Danny Spivey, so people remember. Yeah, he's still fresh. Like they never really killed him off because he refused to do that goddamn job to PN News in '91. Just left, <laughs> so that allowed him to come back in 1992. So there you go. Yeah, 
That, yeah, that's definitely a, 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 a missing art in wrestling is the change in creative every so often, you know. I mean, you don't have to do it every six months or anything like that, but at least keep it fresh, you know, a year to year or something like that. Change it up a little bit. Come on. Yeah, world All class, right. USWA. There you go. All right. So, another, meanwhile, another era ended. The NWA, for the third time, as Rick Steamboat, who had the world title for nearly three months early in the year, left the Federation to attend to personal commitments and undergo an operation on his left foot. He did caution against calling this a retire, permanent retirement. Doctors insisted I have this operation and decided not to risk further injury. Whether or not I eventually return to the NWA is in the story, but right now I'd like to go on wrestling. How I feel down the line might be totally different. And Jim Hurd said that the parting was very amicable and he'll be contacting Steamboat in the future. Well, <laughs> money was the reason why here. And uh, that's what, that's basically what, what happened here. Steamboat's in the middle of a few with Lex Luger. You know, I mean, they just had a match at the Great American Bash. It looks like they're going to, you know, keep on going. So Steamboat leaves and leaves Luger high and dry. So they insert Tommy Rich in the Steamboat spot, which, you know, I love Tommy Rich, but 1989 Tommy Rich and 1999 Ricky Steamboat, mm, big difference, big difference there. But Steamboat doesn't retire. He comes back in the next year working for uh, George Scott and uh, the NAWA, future South Atlantic Pro Wrestling. So, uh, yeah, that's the deal. What's your, what's your thoughts on Steamboat leaving the NWA? It's crazy to me that my favorite – pay-per-view of that era by far was that bash with funk and steamboat hell of a show Clarence steamboat luger and all those guys it's like by like november or by december at least steamboat and funk are no longer wrestling it's like crazy or like they're no longer in wrestling in the nwa is what i'm trying to say because they forced funk to retire and then steamboat left and it's like okay pillman got an elevation in october which is cool but Man, you just wonder what would have happened. Like, what if, what if Funk could have been injected into that Horseman Sting feud, helping Sting? You know, or there's a whole bunch of things that he could have done, probably. But it's, you know, Funk at the time. Maybe I, when I'm watching Funk at the time, I had different eyes, and I'm like, okay, he's just an old guy, and they're retiring him. I swear to God, that's what I thought. It's just so funny because, like, when I start getting into tape trading and everything, and He's in exploding ring matches with Onita and the magazines. I'm like, holy fuck, Terry Funk is crazy. He's still going. He's not done. And then I really became a bigger fan of Terry Funk in like 94, 95, 96 than I ever was. So it's it's just funny how these things happen. But uh, yeah, Terry Funk was put out to dry and Steamboat was gone. And he later came back to WBF and just chopped and kicked and blew fire. And you know, he would tell me stories when he would go to WWF when they got the guy, Kern knew somebody that knew how to, you know, blow fire like that at a local carnival or whatever. <laughs> I was like, man, how does it nearly not kill yourself a million times doing that? Or if you I swallow it, it and you're screwed. Yeah. Can you imagine? They wanted to do it every, Oh, I guess every TV taping, it's not too bad. You maybe do it twice a TV taping every three weeks, but this era he'd be fucked. Cause he'd have to do it like every single week. <laughs> And that wouldn't be very fun. But then I was shocked he kept doing it in WCW. Maybe he enjoyed it. I guess I never asked him if he enjoyed it by the end of it, but he's still blowing fire at center stage, so I guess he must not have disliked it. <clears throat> All right, speaking of Steve Kern, Ho Chi Win is after FCW champion Steve Kern, oh but it's not the belt he wants. He's trying to cripple Kern permanently. 
More than one person has tried, Kern said with a smile, but I still get around pretty good. And of course, Ho Chi Win is Tarzan Goto. What? I never yeah. knew that. I never knew that until right now. Holy shit. Yeah, working in the original FCW. Yeah, and, and basically was the same. Was he built from Vietnam? Yes, he was built from Vietnam. Of course he was. Playing off, playing off Steve's dad, being a prisoner of war, yes. Yeah, at FCW, people that would have gone to our shows at the FCW building, we had he had giant banners up for his dad, so that's that's kind of cool. But yeah, Steve Kern, buddy, kicking Ho Chi Wins ass. <laughs> yeah, kicking his ass for dad. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, Scotty the Body and Top Gun. Dave Sierra were recently involved in one of the hottest feuds in Pacific Northwest. They also haven't been the tag champions. That problem resolved in one match: a loser leave town coal miners glove match, in which the winner would get to pick a partner with which to share the title. Scotty won and chose the grappler. Top Gun has packed his bags. Destination unknown. Well, I'll tell you where he went. The National Wrestling Alliance, because that's where the Cuban assassin appears again. So, uh, but El Sierra. So here we go. Uh, did Top Gun have a mask? He did and lost it. Okay. Cause he originally wore a mask and lost the mask. They yeah. pushed Top Gun hard in the magazines and, and sight unseen. Like, I never even saw a picture of Top Gun. I thought he was like a major deal. And then, like, in years later, I learned that it was just Fidel Sierra, and I was like, oh, okay. And I like Dave Sierra, too, don't get me wrong, but it just was surprising to me that that was who Top Gun was, who dominated the Portland scene. Yeah, fun stuff. Again, 1989 Portland, hell of a year for that wrestling promotion. Absolutely. And Scott, and, uh, Scott the Body, Scott Levy, Raven. God, what a, what a coming out year that guy had. I mean, he Imagine was just tremendous. if somebody on NWA Power could, like, kind of like Ricky Starks, I guess would be the closest thing that could do it. But like there are certain people in wrestling who are made to be TV wrestlers and Scotty, the body Raven, etc. He's done it like three different times, like just different characters, but like, he's so good on global, amazing in Portland, whole different thing. And, and pr presentation on ECW, but still it's like, I, I just think a guy like Ricky Starks, is so similar to Scotty the Body, and I think it could really work if he turns it up even further notches. So yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. That's a good comparison there. He's 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 got some early Scott Scott Levy in him. Yeah, sure. yeah, and like modernized, but like I, I love that. I know this isn't a current show, but we were talking before we got on the phone. Like uh, Sandow, my God, Sandow's built for this kind of thing. Like Sandow working uh -huh. small crowds. Like one of my favorite moments ever being involved with wrestling was watching Sandow in some little town in Florida just generate ungodly heat and just play with the crowd for 10 minutes. And he's got a presence. Oh, he's he so really good. And he, he, he was reared on all this stuff. Like between OVW and FCW, my God, yeah. he's born to do this. And like he's got a presence. They're tossing a different idea and gimmick at you every week to try to go and get over with. And then eventually he just kind of. Talked at Leap and Lanny Poffo and found himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a whole sentence, but I, I promise you there's some <laughs> not gonna some truth to that sentence. But anyway. Lanny Poffo making another appearance on the cover to cover. I love him. Love him. <laughs> All right, now how's this for unusual? A recent CWA card in Memphis featured Jason and Freddy. The former wearing a Freddy Krueger mask, the latter wearing a hockey goalie's mask against the Undertaker and the Zombie who comes to ring in a coffin with manager Ronnie P. Gossett and The Undertaker at his side. 
But during the match, Zombie removed Jason's mask, revealing a skeleton mask. A terrified zombie ran to the ran back into his coffin, leaving the Undertaker alone. Gosson tried to get the Undertaker, I mean, Zombie out of the coffin, but Zombie kept it closed. Finally, Freddy pinned the Undertaker for the win, and it has an in bold face. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know Jerry Lawler's book in Memphis. If we got all these wild gimmicks, and Jerry Lawler was uh, play, playing the role of Jason. Was while, he? Uh, yeah. While Nightmare Freddy was uh, Tommy Gilbert. And, when I read uh, this in the magazines, I was like eleven. Yeah, I was eleven. I kind of thought it was cool, but I'm like, this shit is so crazy. What are they doing? Is this real? And like, I, I, as you're reading, I could picture the zombie sitting up in the coffin. There's a picture. Someone in a Halloween old man mask that would later be worn by Kevin Sullivan with Oz. And like Ronnie Gossett. And it's like, what the fuck is this? And it's like, sounds interesting. I'd like to see it. And like in pictures, it was fun. But God, it's so campy. And it's just so crazy. Something I didn't like about Memphis Heat when I first saw it nine years ago was they kind of just end it when Jimmy Hart leaves. <laughs> but, like, to me, like, everything that happened after that is so much more interesting. Like, the Buddy Landell build on D stuff and Austin Idol, Tommy Rich. And then you had, you know, Lawler turning heel and just all that crazy shit. And then basically from 89 to 93, some of the shit that passed through for a couple of weeks in Memphis is just so ungodly bad, but like bad in like the best way possible where you have to see it like once. And I, I wish someone would do a documentary. I think the gentleman that does wrestling with regret, which is something I only recently found on YouTube and I really enjoy it. Brian Zane. I think he did one on Memphis characters, but I don't know how in depth he went in. It was on his Patreon. I haven't seen it yet, but, uh, I think someone needs to do a documentary on just like dark side late era Memphis because oh there's a lot of material there they could work with absolutely oh It'd yeah be a fun show fun show whatever fun documentary or whatever they they yeah, do yeah they had like Big Undertaker and all that shit the the Fat Boys meat and potatoes is one of my favorites <laughs> C- CW Metal Ed Metal Ed who they should have ro- a video for he never wrestled there oh my God CW Bergstrom the Principal who turned into a wrestler, all of its good Melvin shit. Penrod. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's Melvin Penrod the third. This is all like my PWA. Tagar, the Lord of the Volcano. Yeah, all these guys. It's like, what the fuck? Awesome Kong was interesting yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot, a lot of characters in Memphis. A lot. Any of them. All right. <laughs> and another callback to uh, the previous show. Rip Rogers and Abuda Dean, or you gotta be kidding me, or <laughs> Coco Samoa. No, 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 Abuda Dean, Abudabian. Abudabian, yes, he's uh, he's very interesting in my life. Well, here's they spell it. Abuda Dean in magazine. Here's how they spelled it. Okay, A B A B U. G A D A D I E N. So there's a G uh, in there. They yeah. do. They have it, but that's not how it's spelled. <laughs> I fucking love that they kept it spelled the same way, like three years later, and <laughs> and I'd still be reading it like, what the fuck is any of this? Like, I don't, I don't compute any of this. I probably well, just not to... even try to spell it out in my head. Well, they wanted like I can't secret- I can't say I bag Doug you, know I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just impossible for my brain at eleven or forty-one. I'm just, it's not going to happen. So, 
Well, they won the WBC Caribbean Tag Titles from the Puerto Rican Express, Miguel Perez Jr. and Huracan Castillo Jr. Oh, there you go. Meanwhile, Super Medico, Jose Estrada, took the WBC Junior Heavyweight Title from Chiqui Star. So there's Ooh, some title changes. And, oh, the legend Chiqui Star. Absolutely. Classic. And you'll love this. They'll close this out, this part out. Former friends Dennis Condry and Dr. Tom Pritchard are at war in the CWF. Condry beat Pritchard for the Continental title and got mad when Pritchard asked for a rematch. He's not good enough, Condry exclaimed. A few days later, Condry attacked Pritchard during the match and DDT'd him several times. Wow. So basically, the guy who left the Midnight Express was almost replaced by Tom or feuding with each other in 89. I never I, – you know, I, I can't say I never knew this because I'm sure I read it and I knew it, but I didn't think about it so you just told me now. That's kind of cool. I got it on DVD, brother. Oh, hey now. Well, well I guess we'll talk after the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's on YouTube cool. as well. <laughs> I'll, I'll look for it there too. <laughs> All right. So that's that for that. We have uh, No Holds Barred here on Jake Roberts' uh, legal issues where he beat this dude up, John Bartlett. We're not going to get into that. But uh, it's about you know the, the, the beatdown he gave him. That's interesting that they put this – I mean, this is a real deal thing that happened. And, you know, they never really explained why Jake was gone other than they said he had an undisclosed injury. But here's the magazines putting it out there, you know, putting everything out there. What really happened with Jake Roberts and him beating the shit out of this dude and, you know, having to go to jail. It happened with Terry Taylor in, like, earlier, like, 86. And then something happened with... Uh, well, Terry Taylor had that car wreck, you know. I mean, he had the car wreck in 87, See, I didn't know about the car wreck. I know he punched a fan, and I remember yeah. they really went in depth about it in the magazine, which I thought was well. John Tatum was the one I remember early on. He killed someone. Vehicular homicide. Yeah. Yeah. John Tatum unfortunately killed someone in the car wreck. But uh, even Dynamite Kid, dude, like I didn't be- when the magazines did the articles on Dynamite Kid's back and saying he never wrestled again. I didn't believe the magazines. I believe the WWF. Like, how crazy is that? Because, like, <laughs> he seemed fine to me, and he did lose the belts, even though they drat walked him to the ring. I didn't, as a kid, it didn't compute. And then, like, he still wrestled. So I'd be like, ah, oh, these magazines are making mountains out of molehills. He's fine, you know, but, you know, obviously he wasn't. But, yeah, these magazines, they'll, they'll make you believe. Because even the stuff with Jake, I, I remember reading it and being like, wow, he's kind of an asshole. But he, he, here's the hook on this, though. What they did was they gave you this story, and then they decided to say, all right, now we're going to play crook or not crook. Whose story do you believe? Does Jake deserve jail time for what happened? Or was it simply a case of two men getting into a fight and one man winning big? Or did he pummel the poor man in drunken stupor? Did uh, Bartlett decide to test Jake Roberts? Hey, I could have have beat uh, Jake Roberts. So they wanted you to send your verdict to the offices of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Box 48, Rockville Center, New York, and write, simply write guilty or not guilty on a postcard or a piece of paper. Oh, my God. That's like the shittiest thing they ever did. That's not cool. That's <laughs> I know, right? Why don't they just put a – is OJ guilty or not? Oh, wait. That's somebody <laughs> Wow. That's shitty. So, yeah. And, 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 and listen to this, okay? They talk about Barless. And, by the way, Mr. Barless seems to made a hero of himself. I, I spoke with him twice and reached his answer machine a third time. His ongoing message featured the theme song from the old Batman TV show. Then after a few measures of bat tunes, Bartlett says, quote, I'm out fighting crime, unquote. Wow. Well, how about that? That's got to be the 
the most coverage a non-wrestler ever got in that magazine. That's crazy. Yeah. And then they talk about Antonio Noki running for uh, political office. And there's an you know, interesting little section there on, in No Host Bar. Now, in 1989, the wrestling magazines, you know, for, for, you know, for years they would advertise non-wrestling things. You know, we talked about before, like the bodybuilding supplements and stuff like that. Well, this is a different era, a different point in time. They're, the magazines know exactly who's reading it right now. It's kids that were our age at this time, 10, 11 years old. So the Wrestling Ring Store, your official wrestling connection, is selling Nintendo games. Yeah. And Nintendo controllers and stuff like that. Did you ever order anything from the Wrestling Ring? I actually ordered one thing ever from that outfit from the magazines. It was like Wizards and Warriors one or two for the Nintendo game for like sixty nine ninety nine or whatever, but that was it. But I did. Yeah, order- the ga- <laughs> yeah the games they are, they have here of note are WrestleMania, the WF game, Airwolf after the TV show, yeah, Friday the Thirteenth, Pac Man, Tetris, Jaws, RBI Baseball, one of my favorites. Uh, then you got like a Galaga and Doctor Jekyll Mister High, yeah, forty four ninety nine, you know, thirty five ninety nine. So video games still about the same price. It's interesting after all these years, the video games remain around the same price. Yeah, everything else has gone up. You know, inflation. Big Fest- video games Fest- not so much. Fester's Quest was always big there. Fester's Quest, yeah. All right, so interesting stuff there. All right, next we have in focus of Craig Peters. Where he talks about Steamboat leaving the NWA, how Lex Luger loves it. He said, Lex Luger said he's afraid of it. So he said, uh, Steamboat's not a real family man. So he, he's a scared puppy. Sure. Then they have a deal about Ultimate Warrior beating Andre the Giant and these, all these matches in less than a minute. And 30 seconds in Augusta, Georgia. 45 seconds. Uh, no, 45 seconds in Augusta. Less than 30 seconds in Las Vegas. 30 seconds in Montreal, you know, it's about how uh, this is a sad time in professional wrestling that Andre Giant is losing to Ultimate Warrior in this quick fashion. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, on Andre the Giant at this point in time here? You know, Well, I wouldn't, if I didn't read the magazines, I wouldn't know. But it made me really sad reading the magazines that the guy who was undefeated for the last 15 years is basically losing at 30 seconds all over the country. I was lucky enough not to see one of those quick matches because seeing something like that live would have been fucking heartbreaking. But, uh, yes, shitty. I, I felt bad for Andre. You know, they had near riots, and and uh, I know one of the buildings had uh, near riot because of because uh, fans were demanding refunds. Well, there you go. Yeah, they got, they got in trouble with the Nevada State Athletic Commission over this, too. I wonder if I wonder if Andre liked the Ultimate Warrior, you know, like for him to do all those quick jobs everywhere, and then come back around with them, he had to have, or maybe he was just he felt. I, I think I think it might be another way around. I think he didn't like him, so he's like, let's get this over with quick. I ain't gonna be out here with you. I, I'm gonna lose. I'm gonna lose. I guess I don't know. I I think it's an interesting topic because I know he punched Ultimate Warrior once in the face. Bobby Heenan tells the story all the time. <laughs> about he's he's yeah. learning, you know, but I don't know, man. They had really stiff matches. Like Warrior really laid his shit in on Andre, and maybe Andre didn't like that. Like I think it's interesting. Maybe Andre didn't mind it, and he just liked Warrior and didn't mind putting him over since he was the next guy. 
But he, I, to me, anyone that's like, oh, well, Warrior never had a chance. The fact that Warrior pinned Andre in like, oh, wait, it happened before he won the title. I don't know. I, It's one of those weird things where the fact that Warrior beat Andre in 30 seconds, like in 60 different towns. It's, I mean, he's a made man. You know, he's in my Hall of Fame because of it. <laughs> like anyone that beats Andre the Giant 30 times in less than 60 seconds, even in a work sport, is in my Hall of Fame. Like that's you're made like who the hell beats Andre the giant 30 times in 60 seconds. I know it's amazing. It's crazy. I don't think he did, did like did Andre do jobs. At anyone else that quick. He certainly didn't do it. for. No. Yeah. Like he didn't. So they didn't do it for Duggan and <laughs> they do it for Jake. No. Nope. Interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting one. If anyone knows anything more about that, like ultimate warriors next of kin. So whoever would might know, let me know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Intrigued. And there's another little thing here, a picture of uh, Chris Von Erich throwing a drop kick at a training session with Carrie. As Carrie's training him how to wrestle. So memorable photo. He's throwing a drop kick to Carrie's hand that Jerry Blackwell would be jealous of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And speaking of Carrie, that's Matt not Brock. You know, if, if if Chris Von Erich was on AEW this week, people would be in an uproar. <laughs> he had the hair for AEW in that match. Well, I just Marco mean Jungle Boy. <laughs> This is, my, this is my Marco stunt joke. I was trying to be timely. I know, I know, but I'm saying he had the hair, though. I mean, they had that, that hairstyle. He would have fit in perfectly with him. With a curly Yeah, hair. man. Steve Sim- Sean Simpson, always, Steve Simpson. Yeah. I always thought Chris Von Eric was so small in a time when no one was that size either. But who knows? Maybe he was good. I've never seen a Chris Von Eric match. I know he wrestled Percy Pringle and Akbar around the loop, but. I don't think he had a chance. I don't think he was had a chance to be good. I really don't. Yeah, I've never seen him wrestle, but he was really small. That's all I know. Now, Matt Brock is next, looking at Kerry Von Erich. And I'm not going to read all this, but we you know we talked about on the show the debating if Matt Brock was actually a real person. But uh, We know he's not, right? He's no, not. Obviously not, but there is this long story of back and forth with Matt and Kerry Brock. I mean, Matt, Matt Brock and Kerry at a gym. It's just, it's, it's amazing. Where basically, you know, Carrie, uh, he knows how Matt Brock likes his coffee. And <laughs> he says, come on, Matt. You're not the real Matt Brock. The real Matt Brock doesn't even drink milk with his coffee. Jesus. And Matt, Matt Brock said, my sank to the floor. He was right. The doctors tell me I have high cholesterol. I have to watch my diet. And all of a sudden, I become a health food expert. Hmm. And it goes, into, it goes into, you know, Carrie's diet and what he eats and all this other stuff. I'm like, what? And and Carrie has this line. He says, you know, man, I've seen wrestlers working out for two, three hours at a time. And what they do afterwards, they go out, eat a big 24-ounce steak with the blood just rushing out, a big baked potato with sour cream and butter, a big glass of beer, and these huge rich desserts. The trick is to cultivate your taste buds. So they, they help, not hurt your body. What a bizarre says, column. You have to you have to read this, man. It, it's just, it is really, he, at one point, Carrie quotes Dr. Seuss. <laughs> I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like it, Sam. I am. Carrie certainly burst out with a raucous laugh. That was from a Dr. Seuss book my mother used to read me when I was four years old. Well, I don't eat eggs and I don't eat ham. I avoid red meat. Listen, Matt, my body is my life. and I have to take care of it. There's something a lot of wrestlers don't talk about, but our hey, diet's a Carrie Von Eric quote? Yeah, supposedly. My body's my life. I have to take care of it. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is something else. 
you know what? I was mean, going through an old 1990 WWF magazine today, and they had one of those Say No to Drugs ads on it, and it actually, yeah. for once, was okay because Jimmy Hart was on it, and he never touched anything. So There you go. Yeah. It's like I, I felt like, wow, I finally found one where we can't, like, crack a joke about it. But, yeah. The perfect spokesman. Yeah, for real. Him and Slick. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, next, we have the ratings. And this is perfect for this show. Raw and because this magazine, you know what the period ended on? Uh, October twentieth, August the ninth, nineteen eighty nine. Fantastic! My tenth birthday, your eleventh birthday. Wow, that is yes. Who was number one in the main event? Who was number one in like the best wrestler? Oh well, we'll do top ten last. All right, let's look. Let's look at some of the smaller groups here. The ratings here. Nelson Royals ACW. How much? Uh, how much of that have you seen? Uh, I'm gonna go with none. <laughs> okay. All right. We have David Isley at number ten. Ricky Nelson at nine. Tommy Angel at eight. Shinobi, not Al Snow, at seven. Samoan Ty at six. Spike at five. Ken Shamrock four. Todd Champion third. Nelson Royal two. Sam Houston number one. And your champion Colt Steel. Wow, Colt Steel. You know what? I do remember the ACW because it was basically all of Crockett's job guys basically in a federation. And I – if you can you imagine how much I love the idea of that in 1989. Like I wanted all the AWA and WWF job guys to have their own federations too. <laughs> See, he was the top job guy. Fuck yeah. I'm, I support this a million percent. Wimpy Championship Wrestling? Fuck yeah. <laughs> totally all about Wimpy Championship Wrestling. Imagine, like, if it was AWA, it'd be like Tom Rocky Stone, Pete Sanchez. Uh, Todd Becker. Todd Becker. Jerry Lynn was a good one. Uh, they, Red Tyler. Yep, and then uh, Scrap Iron Gadatsky, uh, Jake <laughs> and Milliman. Yeah, they were yeah. with some. Yeah, and then, of course, the NWA have Lee Scott and... Uh, you know, George South. Golden yeah. Uh, the two Mod Squad brothers, the Monkey. <laughs> yeah, Rocky Jim King. Jeffers, Rocky King. Yeah. Larry Stevens. Stony Burke. <laughs> Stony Burke. <laughs> yeah. All right, Continental. Number 10, Don Harris. Don the Stomper Harris. Number 9, Mike Davis. Number 8, Terrence Garvin. Number 7, Adrian Street. Number 6, Todd Morton. Number 5, Jerry Stubbs. Number four, Alan Martin. Speaking of jobbers. Mm. Number three, Dr. Tom Pritchard. Number two, Danny Davis. Nightmare Danny Davis. Number one, Wanda Cooley and champion, Dennis Condry. Was Terrence Garvin ever Terrence Trent Garvin? No. They, no. You, no. Chris. That might have been something that stayed with me for goddamn years. <laughs> I don't know. No. Brain, but I always thought Terrence Garvin, Terry Garvin, did the pink mat thing in 1988 or 89, and it was when uh, Terrence Trent Darby was a big star, and I think they basically called him Terrence Trent Garvin. But you're saying that never happened. Fuck, never happened. It did. All right. Yeah, never happened. All right, Steve Kearns, FCW, number ten, Dennis Knight, of course, the future Tex Slashinger, Midian, Phineas Godwin. Number nine, Frankie the Thumper Lancaster. Number eight, the Italian Stallion. Number seven, the Bubblegum Kid, Brett Sawyer. God. Number six, Jimmy Backlund, future Jimmy Del Rey. Number five, Al Perez. Number four, Dick Slater. Number three, Comrade Busick, Nick Busick. 
Number two, Ho Chi Win. Number one, can the win them in your champion, Steve Kern. So Comrade Busick was Nick Busick? Oh, yeah. Oh, my. I didn't think he came around for years later. Oh, no. Nick Busick was wrestling in the late 70s. And he left the business to become a police officer. Kind of like Gary Young. They left around the same time. And came back around the same time, too. Wow. Uh, yeah. Can you imagine leaving the business for like 13 years and getting a WWE run and losing it in less than three months? Crazy. <laughs> Poor yeah. Nick Busick. Was he any well, he became, like legitimately? Did you ever see like a really good Nick Busick match? I, Nick Busick's best work came in Georgia Independence. He was re- he was really over here. He was working his casinos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for he was a casino guy. They pushed him hard in the magazines, and I bought it. But I, I don't yeah. recall ever seeing. I don't want to say a good Nick Busick match, but he had some gimmick matches that were good. That's just by that. He didn't even have good squash matches. He would do the stump puller, which was cool, but that's all I really remember. ICW, the Savoldis. Number that's... 10, Mike King Kalua. Number 9, Scott Putsky. Number 8, Tom Brandy. Number 7, Colonel De Beers. Number 6, Ivan Putsky. Number 5, Iron Mike Sharp. Number 4, Ken Patera. Number 3, Vic Steamboat. Number two, can they win the number one Joel Savoldi and your champion, Tony Atlas? Holy fuck, that's like the most nepotism-based wrestling federation of all time. <laughs> like everybody's either someone – where's Ricky Santana, for Christ's sake? That's crazy. <laughs> that's more than French championship wrestling, isn't it? <laughs> Family championship wrestling. Family cha- <laughs> nepotism championship wrestling would be fucking sick. <laughs> all right, we mentioned Portland. Number 10, Rip Oliver. Number nine, Alma Drill. Number eight, Scott Peterson. Number seven, Nord the Barbarian. Number six, Top Gun. Number five, Scotty the Body. Number four, Billy Jack Keynes. Number three, Beetlejuice. Our bar. Number two, Carl Styles. Number one, the Grappler, and their title is vacant. My thing about Scott Peterson, I don't think I've ever seen a single Southern's Rockers match, but when we were little kids in 1989 and 90, we would take the, the AWA figures and we'd take colored tape and we would put the tights and boots on the wrestlers, and we saw a picture of the Southern Rockers, and they basically looked like the Midnight Rockers, like to a T. So we made like yellow tights with like zebra print. The other one had like white, but we had Scott Peterson and Steve Dahl as one of the team. <laughs> That's amazing. And like Scott Peterson was like the world champion. He broke away from Steve Dahl and won a world title. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then like he was just gone, and the magazine said this guy Rex King came in. We're like, fuck that shit. Scott Peterson. <laughs> so like. <laughs> All those years later, when that guy got in trouble named Scott Peterson, I kept thinking of the world champion in my fucking AWA action figure league. It's like, holy shit, Scott Peterson, do not taint this name. But uh, yeah, Scott Peterson was legit sight unseen, one of the most pushed commodities in my action figure leagues. <laughs> I had to share when he said his name. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, Tell me stories like that you get on this show, folks. Yeah, yeah. Like Steve Dahl was a bigger star probably than Scott Peterson ever was. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Whatever reason, we went with pushing Scott Peterson as our champion, as bookers in 1989, 11-year-olds. And like I think we also had DJ Peterson and JT Southern. Like if you had like zebras like skin tights, you were in our fucking league. <laughs> like, Bad company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, well, it's zebra fun. tights were in back then. Lee Scott the job or I had zebra tights? Yeah, man, zebra tights were sick. I, I don't. Does anyone currently wear the zebra print tights? No, they should bring it back. Yeah, someone ironically 
like skin tight zebra skin long tights are cool. So I think Ivan Putsky at one point in time had some zebra tights. Oh well, he, yeah, he had like the short little like fucking Tarzan tights because it was like yeah. and tiger tights because there was a difference yeah. as little nerdy kids making up action figure tights we would all look into these kind of things <laughs> like Snooker Fly and Siva Afi had like the certain kind of tights and then like Beefcake and all these other guys Midnight Rockers like they were rocking the what would later be called Zubaz kind of tights so yeah Scott Peterson all that from Scott Peterson wow I love it Tremendous. All right, in uh, WWC, we have Rip Rogers at 10, Mr. Kareem Muhammad at 9, the White Angel at 8, Curtis Thompson in a mass gimmick here as the White Angel. Oh, I thought seven. Buddha. That's not Ray Muda? No, he was the ninja. You know, this is the White Angel. Basically, he's oh. feuding with Super, Super Medica. Okay, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kamala at 7, Abdul the Butcher at 6, Jimmy Valiant at 5, Invader 1 at 4, TNT at 3. Ivan Koloff at two, Carlos Colon at one, and your Universal Champion, the Satan Worshipper, Steve Strong, aka Steve DeSalvo. Oh, what an awesome run Steve uh, Strong had. Here's a question Is there a match that Kamala and Abdullah ever had that made tape? Against each other? Yeah. They tagged. I know that. They tagged a lot in Japan. Yeah, no one ever booked them against each other? I don't think so. I've never seen it. Damn it, that sucks. Because I thought I, – I know they tagged in Japan with uh, Botswana Beast, but I always thought someone would have had to put the two psychopathic monsters against each other at some point, either, whether Puerto Rico or – because you know like they'd have Kamala matches with one man gang, and like they would sometimes put the big like, – the big guys would always wrestle the big guys sometimes. Like Kamala would wrestle Bundy in WWF. It's funny to me that maybe that never happened. If it happened to anyone, hit us up. Cage match that shit. I guess I could just do it too. But if, any, if anyone has further knowledge than cage match would have, hit us up is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I don't think it ever happened. So. I'll be so, say we're like the version of each other for the companies. Like like if, if you, Kamala was in your organization, Abdullah would usually be the one next door. And then when Kamala would leave, they'd bring in Abdullah. They're like the mercenary guys. Yep. All right, Memphis, number 10, Billy Joe Travis, Dirty White Boy, Tony Anthony at 9, Ricky Morton at 8, Bill Dundee at 7, Master of Pain, a.k.a. The Undertaker, The Real Undertaker at 6, Kerry Manner at 5, Bam Bam Bigelow at 4, Dustin Rhodes at 3, Jeff Jarrett at 2, Jerry Lawler at 1, and your champion, Black Bart. Dude, that's the most talented group of wrestlers we've ever done on here. Would you <laughs> – so wait, Black Bart's the champ, uh, Dustin Rhodes – Master of Pain, Mark Callis, uh, Lawler, Dundee. That's a lot of good guys. Yeah, Memphis had, had a strong year in 89. Absolutely. A lot of great talent back and forth in that, in that promotion. A lot of great talent. 80, 89, again, a lot of these promotions had some, their best, had some great years in 89. Memphis is one of them. Stampede. Owen Hart at 10. Yeah, look. Steve Ray. Not Stevie Ray, Steve Ray at nine, Lynn Crazy Horse at eight. That would be Lynn St. Clair, friend of Chris Jericho, Don Callis, that crew. Bruce Hart at seven, Angela Depp at six, Jason the Terrible at five, Dynamite Kid at four, Johnny Smith at three, Chris Benoit at two, Gama Singh at one, and your North America champion, the legend Larry Cameron. Wow, that's a real talent. That's a talented group too. Holy shit! Yeah, Lenny St. Clair in there. Yeah, 
Good group. Larry Cameron was fuckwittable at the time. He was the man. That's right. All right, USWA. Yes, the Dallas part of it. Matt Bourne at 10, Jimmy Jack Funk at 9, Sheik Braddock at 8, Jeff Jarrett at 7, Chris Adams at 6, Alvarez at 5, Kerry Monarch at 4, Mill Mascaris, or as they call them there, Mills Mascaris at 3, Eric Embry at 2, P.Y. Chuhai at 1, and the King is your USWA champion, Unified Champion. So there's, by the way, Corp- Corporal Braddock was also an LJN fig- or Remco figure. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> tights and I thought Corporal Bra- and again sight unseen Chris. I never saw a fucking Corporal Braddock wrestle. I just saw he was heavily pushed in the magazines and had like he was like a jacked up Colonel De Beers and he never went anywhere else unfortunately. But which figure did you use for him? Oh God, probably Kurt Henning because I think the, Kurt- the camo pants. Yeah. yeah, I think he already had the camo pants. And remember, Kurt Henning is the man who invented the pudgy plex, by the way, which is the body slam, full, a moonsault body slam off the top rope, which is employed by different wrestlers like Bandito and uh, Dan Barry these days. So we invented it in the uh, Remco ring in 1989, we say. There you go. Always innovative. Yeah, you All go. Right, so speaking of Remco and the AWA, Mike George, the timekeeper, Mike George at number 10, Ken Patera at nine, the illustrious Johnny Stewart at eight. Hard Rock Paul Diamond at seven, Scott Norton at six, Derek Dukes at five, Akio Sato at four, Sheik Adnan at three, Sergeant Slaughter at two, Greg Gagne at one, and there's Visco as your champion. Oh fuck the AWA! <laughs> like I would Derek watch, Dukes. I would uh, Starfire Dukes. I would yeah. watch the AWA at the time, but man, that sounds fucking awful. I do think the illustrious Johnny Stewart's running knee to the face is a cool move. The illustrious Johnny Stewart, the template to Chris Candido. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty good analogy there, yeah. Stewart. Exactly. Don't call me Stu-Rat, and then they'd chant Stu-Rat. <laughs> it's so easy, I love it. Yeah. All right, WF, me and Old Man at 10, Honky Tonk at 9, Perfect at 8, Snook at 7, Duggan at 6, Dusty at fit 5, Brutus at 4, Warrior at 3, Savage 2, Rude at 1, and Hogan, your champion. Damn. And then the National Wrestling Alliance. Speaking of talent, this is 1989. Here's their top 10. Pillman at 10. Hot Stuff at 9. Rick Steiner at 8. Captain Mike Rotunda at 7. Dr. Death at 6. Tommy Rich at 5. Great Muda at 4. Sting at 3. Terry Funk at 2. Luger at 1. Flair Champion. Outside of Tommy Rich, no offense, that is like the greatest lineup of all time. If you would have plugged somebody else in there, it's unreal. What a lineup. They were loaded for bear. Loaded for bear. All right, now we have uh, Most Hated. Dennis Conjury at 10, Lawler at 9, Andre at 8, Zabisco at 7, Muda at 6, Root at 5, Luger at 4, Zeus at 3, Terry Funk at 2, and Macho Man at number 1. Who was Condry fucking to get that high? What the hell is that? <laughs> like, does anyone ever know who, or even remember Dennis Condry before he came back to the NWA that year? That's interesting. Especially since he was such a recluse, according to what everyone says. That's well, this is after the NWA. This is after he left. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, when he was still yeah. very reclusive, at, even after he left. Yeah, so. he did. When he, when he came back to Continental and won the Continental Champion, he did that big heel turn for him. And, uh, yeah, he he was over. A you champion. and I'm not going to be. I I'm not going to put two and two together here. But I'll bet you Tom Pritchard had a relationship with or knew someone at the magazines because Tom was always very much figured in the magazines. So like he would probably be the person that would send in for his organization. 
You know what I mean? Because I don't think Robert Fuller or whoever else would be in charge would have been really doing that kind of thing. No, Tom's a good call on that. But Tom, from working with the Norm Kaiser magazines, I just think he had a better rapport with everybody. So I'll bet you if he was the the guy who was submitting stuff from each organization, I'm sure maybe they were like, hey, let's push Condry. So that's my guess. I could text him later and see if it's true. But uh, (laughs) I uh, think that's an interesting – just Dennis Condry seems so weird there at number nine. Most popular, number 10, Owen, Owen Hart. Number nine, Eric Embry. Number eight, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Number seven, Rick Steiner. Number six, Dusty Rhodes. Number five, Ultimate Warrior. Four, Brutus Beefcake. Three, Sting. Two, Ric Flair. And number one, Hulk Hogan. Wow. Hell of a good guy unit there. Yeah. Tag teams. Number 10, Wild Side. Mark Starr and Chris Champion, your CWA tag champions. So add add those guys to that Memphis crew we just mentioned a while ago. Oh, yeah. Number nine, the Destruction Crew. Mike Enos and Wayne the Train Bloom. No more contenders for AWA tag titles. It's funny that no more contenders for AWA tag titles on the list, but the AWA tag champions aren't on the list. <laughs> uh, number eight. Wait, Greg Gagne. Which that would have been, at this point in time, I guess still uh, Kipitera and Brad Rangans. Oof. Yes. All right, number eight, the Heart Foundation. Number seven, Midnight's. Number six, the Bushwhackers. Number five, the Samoan SWAT team. Number four, the Road Warriors. Number three, Demolition. Number two, Michael Hayes, Jimmy Garvin, the Fabulous Freebirds. And number one, the Brain Busters, Tully and Arn. Wow, Road Warriors way down. That's crazy. Bushwhackers have listeners as number two contenders to the tag titles. That's just so odd. I think that's just when they started, though, Chris, because they probably just started. And you know how when you started. They were early in the run. Yeah, you get wins on everyone when you start, so maybe that's it. That's the only thing I can think of. That's crazy. But Wildside was the team. Wildside was doing like all of uh, the new breeds moves, but like more like a like an LA like rough around the edges rock band kind of look. Yeah, they they like they just came out of the Viper Room, you know, exactly. like that. Exactly. River Phoenix. Yep. And Johnny Depp. Yep. Those right. guys. <laughs> and your top ten, Larry Cameron at number ten. In the top ten. Great Muda at nine. Zabisco at eight. Lawler at seven. Root at six. Sting at five. Savage at four. Luger at three. Flair at two. And Hulk Hogan, number one. So there Still you go. Hulk Hogan, 1989. And in the ratings analysis, of course, they have uh, different ratings. And they have the ratings of the managers. All right. Uh, Teddy Long at ten. Slick at number nine. Scanner at bar at eight. Sensational Sherry at seven. Paul Ellering at six. Jim Cornette at five. Polly Dangerously at four. I had to ruffle Cornette's feathers. Elizabeth at three. Gary Hart at number two. And the brain. Bobby Heenan at number one. Notice who's not on that list? Jimmy Hart. Hmm. But Elizabeth is three. All right. <laughs> Interesting list. Yeah, it is. Um, but you she managed Hulk Hogan in theory, so like they're trying to say through her tutelage, he is the number one wrestler in the world. So I kind of get it from that perspective. But you look at you look at the Jimmy Hart fan, you know, the Jimmy Hart group at this point in time. I mean, he's got Honky, he's got Greg Valentine. Um, that's about it. He doesn't really have a, a real group here at this point in time, as far as main players. Yeah, it's it's an unusual top ten. Jimmy Hart, though, how many times have you seen him without glasses on? 
Like sunglasses? Uh, in recent years, no, I haven't. I'm trying to like during the Memphis Heat, they really. Oh, he's what I glassed a lot in Memphis early on. Yeah, he was, and it, it just it brought me to thinking like, holy fuck, I think he had his glasses glued to his fucking head for thirty years because the only well, time Jay Anfinger did. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, the only time I saw him without them was I went to Hogan's Beach. Uh, there was like a, a restaurant outside Clearwater for like a couple of years, and I went to it actually 2012 or something, and he was just there walking around without his glasses, and I thought it was like just sacrilege. Like, oh my God, Jimmy Hart doesn't even look like Jimmy Hart without his glasses on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a rare occurrence. All right, so we go from there to uh, the story about Bruce Beefcake. Written by Stu Sass. When will Beefcake turn against Hogan? And they got pictures, of course, of Beefcake and Hogan in previous matches because they, they had a house show program in 84 and 85. And, you know, Stu Sass goes over all the people that's turned on Hogan in recent years, like Orndorff and Andre and Savage. And, you know, I mean, it talks about how this distinct possibility that you know, Beefcake could turn on Hogan. And um, he actually talked to Paul Orndorff, supposedly, for this. And Orndorff said it's very difficult to be friends with Hogan. At first, it was a good idea because it puts you in the spotlight. And in the long run, it can ruin your career. You see, once you're on Hogan's side, he just starts caring about your future. A friend of Hogan will never get a title shot. Then there's his ego. The man's absolutely full of himself. If you stand in the ring at their big win, he starts talking about the glory. It can be a little annoying. I wouldn't be surprised if Beefcake and Hogan were enemies by the time Christmas rolls around. A guy like Beefcake isn't going to put up with that Hulkamania crap for long. Uh, that is interesting. Um, do you think that they should have done a Beefcake turn on Hogan? Or do you think they were so invested in doing Warrior Hogan at WrestleMania that they didn't want to go in that direction here? I don't know, man. Beefcake is one of these guys that, as a little kid, when he was tag champs at Valentine, I liked him. And then he was just on all the shows. And he was one of those wrestlers who I never even knew if he was good or not. <laughs> he was just on all the shows. I knew I wasn't a big fan. But, you know, he was jacked and tan and tall. So it's like, oh, he's got to be a good wrestler. Because <laughs> that's all you needed in those days as a kid. So, like, I liked Beefcake in that way. But, like, never stood out. Never, to me, felt like someone that should have been challenging Hogan. So I'm going to say no. Until he butchered his friendship back in '94 and ruined WCW for everyone, but you know, it's nice that you used the word "butchered" there. <laughs> oh, yeah. the butcher. I remember, uh, I remember the, Tony Schiavone's line, but yeah, I, I I wasn't a big Beefcake fan. I yeah, it's whatever. <laughs> I, I it's one of those weird things where he was really figured in on all the shows, but I really don't have too many vivid memories of anything he ever did. Yeah. And then that wreck happened, and it changes life and career. So, yeah, who knows? Who knows what would happen at the end of that wreck? Maybe he would have turned on Hogan down the line. Who knows? Yeah, I imagine he would have if the wreck doesn't happen, for sure. All right, next we get our cover story. The Young and the Restless. The NWA's features in their hands, written by Bob Smith. He talks about all the major challenge changes in the NWA, you know, at the end of 88 and early 89. Uh Talk about how the Doomsayers came out full force and the NWA would never rebound from these losses. So it looks like the critics have been proven wrong. The NWA seems more competitive now than this ever been. There's so much young talent in this promotion. And he goes over, he's got them grouped. He's got the superstars, where he's got Lex Luger, Sting, and Rick Steiner. You know, they, they are the superstars. 
Then he's got the Phenoms, Sid Vicious, and the Great Muda as his Phenoms. And then he has the um, Upstarts, which is Scott Steiner and Brian Pillman. Then he starts talking about Simone SWAT team. Listen to this group of names he lists for the uh, uh, the other talents. The Simone SWAT team, Scott Hall, Phil Apollo, and the Dynamic Dudes. <laughs> Phil Apollo. I, I changed what I said earlier. Whose dick was Phil Apollo sucking at? <laughs> that's, that's insane. How does he get in there? Uh, no, he's, I'm just joking. Phil Apollo was not giving favors. Uh, yeah, I don't. He wasn't getting wins on TV either. That sounds weird. It's weird. What's weird? What's he here for? Was he Doink or was that Ray Apollo? That was Ray Apollo. Oh, okay. Phil Apollo, of course, was Playboy Vince Apollo. Okay, from world class. Okay, yeah, I don't. Yeah. That's such a. I don't even remember seeing a Phil Apollo wimpy match in WCW. I don't either. Yeah, I remember him being him, being the wimpy. <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah, the wimpy, not the uh, wimpy beater. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a sick group of talent, though. I. Uh, the only one they really truly missed the boat on was Scott Hall, but maybe Scott Hall wasn't ready yet either. So I think Scott Hall. I think what I always heard was when he went to Puerto Rico in 1990. He really kind of discovered himself and, and formulated more of his character. And then by 91, when he comes in with DDP as the Diamond Stud, he's fucking money. So, but no, that's a great group of talent. 89 NWA, of all the you know promotions and years, where does that rank on your list? Oh, God. It's, fuck. Top three. Top three, it has to be. It, it's top three. Unless... I watch a lot more of 1986. It's probably the best year in WCW that I ever watched. Like NWA and WCW. I really like 1985 NWA too, which is weird to say since it didn't all pop off till 86. But just some of those 85 crowds were so insane. So I like that too. But no, 89. I hated the beginning of 89. But from, you know, May to December, it's just untouchable. It's so good. Oh yes, it's tremendous. It's tremendous. I loved it. Loved every minute of it. So, yeah, and, and these guys, man. I mean, it's amazing to me how they did. How that promotion couldn't become bigger than what it was. Yeah, how did they fuck it all up? It's so insane to me. Because they were owned by a company that, that didn't care. You know, if they if they were owned by a Vince McMahon type, who, you know, wrestling was his passion. There's no telling how different WCW could have been, man. It's always weird to me, too, when, like, we talk about that summer bash and how, like, Michael Hayes and Cornette and Pauly and Eddie Gilbert and all these people who are so smart, uh, Gary Hart, just probably the funk flair, the biggest collection of minds in one place ever, probably. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, I could understand if all of them are pitching in ideas for their angles, like, became what Great American Bash 89 was, which is fucking the greatest show of all. If not the greatest show, the greatest uh, build to a show I think I've ever seen. It's like, okay, how do you then completely kind of drop that off within the next four months? Because they had that really hot clash in Troy, New York, too. So it's not like it just yeah. went kaput after the bash. But no, I mean, I mean, you, you mean, look, you look at it, it doesn't really start going downhill, you know, until uh, Sting gets hurt and Flair turns. But like everyone within the booking committee all kind of points to, oh, you just couldn't have that big of a booking committee. Like no one ever like names names like, oh, this guy underhand underhandedly 
fucked all my ideas. You know what I mean? And then, but it's just like there was just too many people with too many ideas, and it needed to be one, like whether Ric Flair or whomever. You know what I mean? But I don't know. Kevin Sullivan was there too. Jesus, think about all the fucking people there. There were like yeah. Sullivan, Hart, Cornette, Paulie, uh, you know, Gilbert. Michael Hayes and Jim Ross. Jim Ross, Jesus Christ, yeah, Jim Ross, Funk, Flair, and they weren't all even on the committee. But you know that if you're a wrestler at the time in 1989, you're pitching ideas like the Marietta Massacre, for instance. Like that's such a great angle where the Samoans and the Freebirds beat the fuck out of the Road Warrior. Like, oh yeah, it's the blood on the handcuffed other person, and the fans are hitting the ring taking DDTs, and they weren't really fans. <laughs> God damn it, they were to me. So it was just the craziest fucking thing, and that wasn't even the thing I was most hyped for at the bash because then you had Funk Flair, you had Steamboat, their laser number one contender angle angle with Ricky Steamboat, you had the Dragon Shy and Muda and Sting and Gilbert and Gary Hart cutting promos and. Just it's just like you just look back at this whole fucking magazine and you say, How did they fuck this all up? <laughs> Sid Vicious was so exciting as like a young rookie talent with the company. The Muda, the Pillman was on the cusp. You know, there's just so much happening. Yeah, it 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 just boggles the mind. But that's WCW in a nutshell. Sorry. Like think summer nineteen eighty nine and then think of fall nineteen ninety. Where like Barb Armstrong and Buddy Roberts are doing run-ins on tag team matches, and the Minotaur and the Motor City Madman are on mat, and it's just like, what? Like how did J- we get- JYD and, and World Title Program with Flair? Uh- how did we get from one to this? Like you have this big youth movement, and like I love Buddy Roberts and I respect Bob Armstrong, but like why were they? in a, <laughs> kind of a big program on TV for NWA in 1990. It's just crazy. Thunderbolt Patterson wrestling to brawl back in. <laughs> yep, yep. And that's Ole. That's Ole, though. Booker's named Ole, you know? All right. Yeah, it's a shame. It is a shame. All right, we got our pinup here, Jimmy Snooker, which actually the pinup is still in the magazine. And oh. at the end of the pinups, you know, they're, they're beginning to give all the run, career rundown and stuff, and they have a close-up at the end. Most hated opponent. Who do you think Jimmy Snuggles' most hated opponent is? Rowdy Piper. Wrong. Colonel the Beers. Oh, yeah, because the racism. Okay, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I get it now. Now, you'll love this. I was going to say the downtown PD, but I... Oh! <laughs> that's not uh, nice. I'm just kidding. <laughs> what do you think they have as his greatest match? Uh, Bob Backlund off the cage. Nope. Not even close. This this one boggles my mind. What they have what? his his greatest match, him teaming with Arnold Skolan, beating Morocco and Albano at Massacre Garden on twelve twenty six eighty three. That's the stupidest shit ever. Why? It's amazing. Wow, that's such a weird match. Toughest opponent, Roddy Piper. Yep. Right, and good. of course, favorite maneuver. I mean, it's the superfly splash. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking it's the snooker fly splash. Yes. Yeah, do you know which picture they used? Uh, is he standing on top of the cage going to do it on Backlund? No, it's the one where he's in, in the air, and it looks like he's jumping on top of Buddy Rose. There you go. Oh, that's sweet. He did have a great-looking top rope splash. Absolutely. And it seems like every good splash that the Samoans do from either Fatu or or any like the real bigger Samoans later on, they all kind of employed that same kind of cool cliff dive 
technique, which is great. All right, next we got uh, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. Are they the greatest greatest tag team ever? Written by Bob Smith, where he interviews uh, Lou Albano, he interviews Nick Botwinkle, interviews Jim Cornette, allegedly. And they give quotes here, and uh, they're really putting over you know, Arn and Tully here as uh, being greater, greater than the Freebirds, the Road Warriors, you know, some of the tattoos from the past. Um, wow. I mean, they are, I mean, this is an article really puts over Arn and Tully, which, I mean, in their WWF run, it was so odd. You know, it just, it just was odd seeing them in the, in the WWF at this point in time. It just, it didn't feel right. So, uh, what do you think about this article here? The greatest tag team ever, possibly. I just think back to the other very well-received, uh, podcast I did with Voices of Wrestling because the guy I was talking to, I forget, There's I confuse the two, the guys that run it, but a uh, really awesome animated person. But they're Joe like, Lanza. Okay, yeah, it was Joe. So like he was just like, dude, they only really had like a two-year run or three-year run. I'm like, oh my god, that's true. But I'm like, they're still Hall of Fame. And then I think, well, you know, Arn and Bobby were really good, and Arn Oli could be arguably better than Arn and Tully, and Tully and Gino were really good. Te- and it's just like you, you you overthink it, but ultimately... Here's the deal. Here's the deal real quick. <laughs> the Arn, and, Arn and Tully's cases are better if they're broken up. If you put them together, that hurts their cases. Go ahead. You think so? Yeah. You If you have Arn and Tully as, as just singles guys, that then you could put their entire career on the on there. You know, look at what all they did. But you put them as a tag team with J.J. Dillon, you pigeonholed them into this run. Without even the WWF run, yeah. So I, I still said yes because I think they're that good and that influential on so many teams. Oh, they're definitely influential. Absolutely. Look at the revival, for God's sake. Yeah, but it's – I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. Greatest tag team ever? No. Like I'd still pick the Road Warriors, and I know that's not the smart – answer people would say but when you think of what tag teams had the most influence on tag team wrestling or were around for an era where tag teams meant a lot i would put the road warriors and freebirds near the top and i put the road warriors as number one so that's just where i you know there's probably smarter answers oh well talway and kawada and this and that sure you know but for me (laughs) The Road Warriors were just this monolith tag team that just destroyed fucking everybody in their path. And you gotta look at you can't just look at in ring. You have to look at the totality of of pro wrestling. And I'm gonna agree with you on the Road Warriors because the Road Warriors changed the business. Look at all the fucking fake Road Warriors teams. You must the big jacked up guys. Like you'd say, oh well, Hogan too, but like they revolutionized the business. Yeah, and makeup and people weren't. And this isn't like an ageism thing, but like if you weren't around from 1984 to 1990, you're just not going to get it, maybe. Because like a lot of people look at the later Road Warrior run as like, oh, God, they've tarnished everything. But, you know, I I, I don't look at it like that. I just look at this dominant team because I even give them from 83 to 95. OK, because I know they had a couple years off there where, you know. Animal became Kensuke Sasaki for a couple of years, <laughs> but <laughs> and when they got back together. I really wish they stayed in WCW. 
because I think in WCW they could have been pushed better and fought to win more matches and not be in competitive matches. And because they had that match with the Steiners, which is fucking so. I would even say the match with the Steiners on '96 Nitro in April, I think, is one of my favorite. It's probably my favorite Road Warrior match ever. And that's supposedly way past their prime, but it was fucking really good. If anyone hasn't seen that match, find it. It's so good. Yeah, like, I mean, it's they, they it's just a, such a smash mouth match that you you gotta just love it. And really, Animal commits. Animal takes bumps like a fucking lunatic in that match. <laughs> so yeah, that's good too. Scotty Steiner takes great bumps all the time, anyway. So it, it's just a really good match. But yeah, the road. You know what? The Steiners are another team I would put way high. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, they're they're in they're in the, the short list. Oh, absolutely. That's so that we'll have to do at some point with somebody because I I really enjoy the idea of. You know, comparing and contrasting tag teams. Because then when we get the Young Bucks, everyone will send me fucking hate letters. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Well, I mean, for this this generation, I mean. If you honestly think about it, the the Young Bucks, I tried to make a list one time of all the teams that I had the I've seen have that team's best match and it was like fucking 20 long. And then later someone else like sent me like 30 more. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, like versatility wise. You know, I get if you don't like them as people or you don't like their shtick or whatever, but for a good decade plus, you know, they've really, really had the best match with such a wide variety of teams. They're like fucking oh, – oh, yeah. Everyone always called Conrini and air traffic controllers, and I think they're similar in a totally different vein. So, Oh, I mean you can't deny it. You can't deny what they've done. Absolutely. they uh, In the past 15 years, they, they're right there. I mean, yeah, man, right private party good. match seemed universally well liked too, so that's cool. Cause that's... I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I would put them, uh, put the Usos. I mean, right, and right there in that level, maybe, maybe the Briscoes on some of their stuff they've done. But I mean, yeah, Young Bucks, Young Bucks and Usos at, in totality, probably the two, the two that I would say so, would be know, the one. Claudio and Hero were really good too, but they didn't. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They didn't have as long of a time. Like if you think about yeah. it, the Young Bucks were a team probably a decade longer, which is crazy to think about. But yeah, they kind of were. So it's like, you know, it's okay, maybe not a decade, but like a good five, six years. <laughs> but it's 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 just an interesting topic. But to me, I'll always lean toward the older teams. Uh, you know, Midnight Rockers or Rockers and Fantastics and Road Warriors. Fabulous ones are good. They're another one that you're helping me learn that they're way better than I thought they were too. So I tell you, I tell you another under, a great underrated tag team: uh, the Nightmares, Danny Davis, Kim Wayne. Nightmares, Danny. Yep, Pat Tanaka, Paul Diamond, PG Thirteen. Yep, bad company. PG-13. You know, there's there's really, really, really good tag teams that got tag team wrestling because that's the new thing now that everyone argues about. Oh well. They don't have con- like consistent tag team matches that enforce the rules of tag team. Tag team wrestling's been so bastardized for so long that I don't think a lot of people even realize what tag team wrestling is, for better or worse. And like, even the rules of wrestling have been so lenient, and there's so much latitude on who can get away with what for how long, with refs counting until five. You know what I mean? It's just like it's harder to judge. Like that, you could really appreciate Dawson and Dash's matches because they really they still work through old school tag team wrestling constraints, which is by the rules, quick tags, uh, blind tags, making the tags mean something, which I could completely respect. But then I could also completely respect just the balls of the wall, crazy, innovative wrestling match with four different guys doing unique things, you know? So it's, it's, it's all, it's all what, you know, the way the match is set up. 
you know, it yeah. is what it is. It's, it's cool, I, but I like the topic a lot. And, and like I said, the Road Warriors are number one for me. These have to be. British Bulldogs are a really good team, too. That's a great segue. Our next uh, article here, <laughs> Canada's best tag team, hey. the British Bruisers. Oh, Bulldogs have... X'd out. Yes. Yes. Well, Dave Boston, Dynamite Kid, a.k.a. the British Bulldogs, wants rule tag team wrestling. But a violent breakup of this classic scientific duo and Dynamite's formation of a team with Johnny Smith has resulted in the new empire called the British Bruisers. Yes. And of this. I'm not sure I saw a single British Bruisers tag team match outside of all Japan. But I will say I was a fan of this idea. Davey goes off as a single star and then Dynamite and Johnny Smith. Now, here's one for you, Chris. All right. And everyone thinks, oh, Naylor has watched all the wrestling ever all time. I have not. Uh, when Johnny Smith was coming into ECW, yes. people way smarter than me were like, oh, my God, Johnny Smith is coming. And he's fucking so great in his technique, and he's unbelievable, and he's the man, and he's so good. You might not even understand how good he is. He was boring as shit, <laughs> and I, I, I'm not saying overall because remember I just pled ignorance. I haven't seen much outside of ECW and some All Japan, but what was I missing? John Henley, Johnny Smith, I'm not saying he's boring as shit because that will be the quote taken out of this, but what I'm saying is when I saw him in ECW, I remember he was supposed to wrestle Rob Van Dam, and they pulled that match, and they did Rob Van Dam the balls. I always heard that Paul Lee was not a fan of the matches Rob Van Dam was having with Johnny Smith. So it just didn't happen on a big scale because they thought the crowd might shit. Well, there was an injury. I mean, yeah, like like uh, they had that match in 96, if you remember, where I think Johnny Rob Van Dam uh, fucked up Johnny Smith's shoulder. Is like separate Really? Shoulder. 96? Yeah. Yeah, ninety six. Yeah, nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, Johnny had to miss a all all, all Japan tour because of it. <laughs> okay, okay. See, I didn't know any of this because like Dan Crawford's another one that I didn't necessarily understand. And then I looked back and I watched more. And like Dan Crawford is so good at crafting matches. He's so good at all these different techniques, and he's fucking awesome, right? But with Johnny Smith. What would be two Johnny Smith matches you could tell me to watch that I could then watch and be like, ah, so that's what I was missing. Because I'm not saying I'm right. I'm saying when I watched ECW, I had an expectation set, and I bragged all my friends about how good this guy was because I'd read about it either in The Observer or you know, I, I just other things or, or see him in a New Japan match here or there. But like nothing to me has stood out with Johnny Smith. So I'm just trying to get your opinion since you've seen a lot more than I have. I'm, I'll give you two Van Dam matches. Uh, all, him and All Japan, and Van Dam in '95, and then him and him that match he had with ECW and Van Dam in '96 when the injury happened. I thought that was a hell of a match because Van Dam at he that point in time was a with, different Rob Van Dam. Johnny Smith there in 1996. Are we sure about this? Positive. I just watched it. <laughs> What? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the date. Hold on a minute. I didn't Let think Johnny Smith pod. went to the ECW until 1999. That's why I'm confused. Dude. All right. No, he was there in '96. He was there. He was there when Doc and Gordy was there, uh, and Furnace and Lafon was there. What? Uh, yeah, absolutely. How do I not see here? Remember any of this? Yeah, he come in and wrestled Taz, Luis Piccoli. All right, Johnny Smith uh, uh, versus Luis Piccoli on August 3rd. That was a good match. Taz was Johnny Smith on September 14th. That was a Taz match. Uh, but there was a Rob Van Dam match, too. I'm, I'm trying to remember when it was. It but, uh, might have been 99, because I think that was on the best of the 80s set, or best of the 90s ECW set. But, like, regardless. Let me let me check just to make sure. I'm, I may have missed it. 
But yeah, I mean, he he worked a couple shots in ECW, and uh, and yeah, I mean, he, he looked good there. But I understand what you're saying. He wasn't he wasn't he's dynamic, solid, but unspectacular. But he also was because Finley was another one for me that took a while. Like every like Bill Snyder and Death Valley Driver guys, like oh Finley, Finley, Finley. I'm like oh, I kind of get it, but now my God, I watch Finley all that, especially like Finley. And like uh, Mark Rocco or Finley and uh, Marty Jones, like I think those are some of the best matches of all time. Okay, it was Taz and Johnny Taz, the Taz that did the shoulder, not Van Dam. I don't know why I said my Van Dam, but Van Dam, the Van Dam '95 match in all Japan, definitely check that out. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was Taz, not Van Dam. I'm ready to do because I see here it was he built from the Isle of Man, which is always a great thing. Because I remember yeah, something like that. Yeah, Jack, Tony Charles was from the Isle of Man, just. Such a, a brutish thing. But uh, anyway, no, that's cool, man. Well, there you go. That's what I was asking. Yeah. All right. We've been talking about tag teams. PWI was running the big tag team tournament, the Dream Tag Team Tournament. Fuck yeah. Here we go. For 1989. So let's go over the list here. For, all right. So we got the uh, first round matches already took place. And basically what you did was you put your ballot on who was going to win the matches. All right, our first-round pairings are the Road Warriors versus Johnny and Davey Rich, the Powers of Pain, Warlord of Barbarian against Rick Steiner and Andy Gilbert, Mike Rotunda and Steve Williams against Bad Company, Paul Diamond and Pat Tanaka, Hanson and Gordy versus the Bushwhackers, Demolition versus Muckin and Vulcansing, <laughs> of course, Vulcansing being Gary Albright, the Samoan SWAT team versus the Twin Towers, Akeem and the Big Boss Man. Such an awesome match. I remember that to this day from that magazine. What a great idea. Midnight's Bobby and Stan against Jeff Jarrett and Gary Von Erich. And Tully and Arn against Ken Pater and Brad Rangans. All right. Your, so your quarterfinals end up being Road Warriors and the Powers of Pain. Rotunda and Doc against Hanson and Gordy. Demolition against the SST. And... Lane and Eaton against Tully and Arn. Fuck, what? Now, this isn't even fair. This is all so good. All right, so now we have the semifinals. So let's see what a young 11-year-old Rob Naylor and young 10-year-old Chris Zeldin would who we would pick as the winners here. All right, your semifinals is the Road Warriors against Hanson and Gordy and Demolition against the Midnights. Fuck. You go first. <sighs> Believe it or not, I was a giant Gordy guy. And I almost, if anyone else was in the other bracket, I guarantee you I would have voted Gordy and Hanson. But since the demolition was in the other bracket, I guarantee you I picked Road Warriors and then I picked Demolition too. So I could see that. <laughs> I guarantee it. But like that would not have been my initial picks. Like I would never even got that far, I don't think. Yeah. See, you're thinking, you're gonna remember, we got to put ourselves in this time period. You know, what, what I'm saying is when, the first, when they introduced the tournament, I still I know. My, I still have my bracket. <laughs> like I remember what I did, and I, I know that I didn't have demolition. The Road Warriors is my final. I probably had Gordy and Hanson against somebody else. But what I'm saying is, with you reading me the particular bracket you just read, if I could go back to 11 year old Naylor brain, I would certainly go for demolition and the Road Warriors because that would be like the dream match of all dream matches. And that's what I would have done too at 10 years old I, because that. That's the match. And you look at these four teams, that's the match. Yeah, like even because if I you, like the Midnight Express and Gordy and Hanson more, I would still way rather have that other match. Yeah. Because like I mean, I you got the face against the real deal. Towers took me like two days to figure out who I wanted to win. <laughs> like when you read that one, it, I, I laughed because it's like, holy shit. 
I remember thinking of the SST and the Twin Towers and who would win. And because that's to this day, that's such a fucking awesome match on paper, especially in 1989. Like, God, that would yeah, be. I mean, just imagine B- Boss Man and, you know, Fatu and Samu, man. God to mighty. Oh, yeah. And, and like, oh. Fatu and Samu had such good matches with Botswana Beast and, and Kamala also. So they, they were really good wrestling bigger dudes. So you want to, by the way, I looked up Johnny Smith. I'm going to read something just so everyone knows. Johnny Smith was known to be very kind to his fans. One night, a Japanese fan had made a ring jacket for him and was so nice and generous that Johnny didn't have the heart to point out there was a mistake on it. The misspelling of his first name, which ended up being J-H-O-N-N-Y. And and Smith continued to wear the jacket throughout his career because I remember it was misspelled. I'm like, what a nice guy he is then for doing that. That's a cool little tidbit on Johnny Smith. Who by next yeah. week, guys, will be my favorite wrestler <laughs> watching all these <laughs> After I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> At least I'm that fan, though. There's so many fans that are just like, well, you're wrong and I'm right. And I'm rare. But well, I'm so open to figuring out what I'm wrong about. So we'll see if I like Johnny Smith more by the next time we talk. That's my homework. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. They had the... The list of the 10th anniversary Sweet States winners. You know what the number one prize was? Uh, Lock of Ric Flair's head or hair. That's up there. That's up there. That's oh, number three. The, 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 Bob Backlund's workout shorts. Ugh. All right. Was Lufez's championship belt something on there too? Uh, Mexican heavyweight belt. Yeah. Holy fuck. I mean, here's some of the prizes they gave away. I wanted the Mexican heavyweight belt more than life itself. That I remember when <laughs> I was put on the thing in 1988 to win in 1989 and i was just thinking oh my god if i win the mexican heavyweight belt <laughs> the luthez hat or whatever i it it's just such a ridiculously cool prize that i wonder who has it now and because that was it was the- won by scott baird of clearwater florida get the fuck out of here well when i move back in february i gotta go seek that fucking guy out because that sounds incredible can you imagine if that's a real human being and he really won that belt? That's fucking sick. Yeah, here's some of the other, here's the other the other prizes: Jim Cornette's tennis racket, the Iron Sheik's boots, Man of TA's trunks, Wahoo McDaniel's headdress, Roddy Piper's t-shirt, Dusty Rhodes' cowboy hat, Rock and Roll Express vest, t-shirt, bandana, and guitar picks, Buddy Rogers' boots, what? Bruno, yeah, Bruno Sammartino's trunks. God. Randy Savage's 98 Achievement Award plaque, Ricky Steamboat's boots, Mr. Wrestling 2's robe and mask. Then you got Lou Albano's Body Smasher paperback book. <laughs> wow. It, it took what a, a fall there, didn't it? But yeah, dude, those are all such ridiculously good. Oh, we got more. <laughs> we got more Champions of the Galaxy wrestling game, Michael Hayes Bash USA regular and super package. Gordon Sully's Chancha Wrestling Trivia Game, Nintendo Action Set plus WrestleMania Game, Nintendo WrestleMania Game, NWA Trading Card Set, WrestleMania Handheld Game, WrestleMania VCR Game, Wrestling Ring Championship Belt, Wrestling Ring Tag Team Championship Belts. This would have been one I would have loved. WWF Action Figure Extravaganza, mm-hmm. WWF Stretch Wrestler Package, and the last one, a lifetime subscription to Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Wow, that's whoever won that still getting that shit right now. That's crazy. That ended up and, a huge prize. You know what the most requested prize was? The lifetime subscription. No, Luthez's championship belt. 
Oh, <laughs> okay. The well, five yeah. most sought after prizes was the Iron Sheik's boots, Lutez's belt, Wrestling 2's robe and mask, the action figure extravaganza, and the lifetime subscription of Frozen Illustrated. Wow, dude, that Mexican heavyweight belt. Because you remember, in those days, no one had replica belts and all that kind of shit. And trust me, I am not one of those replica belt people either. I'm nothing against them, bless their hearts, but I don't like it when people carry them to shows because that was like a major thing a decade ago. It's kind of like if you have a replica belt and you just want to have it in your house, hey, cool, that's fine. But I, I just don't understand. Hey, I'm the I'm the Mid Atlantic champion. I'm just gonna walk around the show with my belt. Like, I, <laughs> Bless your hearts. I'll get a bunch of hate tweets about that. But no, I, I, I just never understood that. If you do it, there was a guy that used to go to Georgini shows named Big Sexy Brad. He was this bald dude. Okay. And and all he would do, he would have uh, championship belts with him. He would have like Big Goldie, and he would take pictures with the wrestlers with his belt and stuff. It's, it's kind of uh, more fan friendly, I guess. That's okay. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I if you could have one belt. If you could buy like a replica belt, what would it be? There's two that come to mind. The Mid-South North American Heavyweight title belt, that big monster, <laughs> and and the, the AWA World Heavyweight title belt, the Martell version. Wow, so you're clearly a big belt mark, literally, because both of those belts could kill somebody if you hit them with <laughs> Now, that North American title belt was huge. Yeah, I, I would do the Western State Heritage title. That's a great that, one. That Dusty invented, and it was also like a really cool-looking belt. And I even like the name of it, even though I didn't understand what the fuck it meant as a kid. But the Western State Heritage title and probably either the AWA tag team titles from 1986 or the cool WWF belts. tag team titles from 1986. A lot of similarities there, yeah. Yeah, I like, I like, I like the world and the little – uh, the letters of the company and all, but no, those are cool belts. So I, I, I'm not against all quote quote unquote belt marks. I'm just saying that, you know, the people that carry them around everywhere is a little unusual. But that's all. <laughs> but yeah, I was losing my mind to get that Mexican heavyweight belt back in 1989. <laughs> that's the craziest fucking prize you could ever get. Like Luthez is. Imagine how nice all those people were to do that. They could probably net so much money, especially in these these days, if they were still alive. Like, Steemo could probably sell his boots now for, like, fucking $5,000 or something. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's wild. All right, let's let's go to the arenas, and we'll do some arena reports here. Let's start off in Charleston, West Virginia, the Civic Center. We have Norman Lunatic over Stephen Casey, a.k.a. Stephen Dane. Stephen Dane. Danny Spivey destroyed Ricky Santana. <laughs> Dick Murdoch defeated Mike Rotundo. Eddie Gilbert defeated Kevin Sullivan in a tape fist match. And this... Interesting match. The Midnight Express, Bobby and Stan, over Ron Simmons and Butch Reed as a team before Doom. Now, do you know what the, their team name was? And, oh, yeah, uh, the, the Ebony Experience. The Ebony Experience. Okay. Who's booking the, the NWA around this time period? Oh, my God. Michael Hayes. Eddie Gilbert. Oh, Eddie Gilbert. Who's, who names Booker T and Stevie Ray and Global? Get the fuck out with Eddie him. Gilbert. Oh, I never knew that. <laughs> yes. God, that's so funny because I remember Butch Reed would have wimpy matches and they'd send Ron Simmons out to scout for some reason. And Teddy Long would be scouting too somewhere across the arena. So they were trying to put them together, but then they just didn't do it. But look at that. There you go. The Ebony experience. Yeah, I, rem I Chris, I remember this actually. 
And I thought they'd have been even better team then before they were doing. Well, wait, they were doing just months later. What the fuck am I talking about? Like, it's yeah. just funny how I didn't, it's so funny how I didn't even make that connection. Like months later, that they put them together as because I was I was dead set that Larry Cameron was in Doom. <laughs> like <laughs> I was fucking convinced, even though they gave me the hint with the magazines calling them the Ebony Experience, and even for whatever reason, I was just like, oh, I think that's Larry Cameron, and I don't know. Rocky Johnson. I didn't fucking know. I didn't know who Doom was legitimately, Chris. <laughs> Despite the fact that one did like the coolest spinebuster ever that only ever Ron Simmons would do. I had no idea until like later. All right, we got AWA action here in, in Rochester, Minnesota, the Mayo Civic Center. We got uh Paul Diamond over the illustrious Johnny Stewart by disqualification. Greg Gagne over Mike George by disqualification. Derek Deuce and Tommy Jammer over the Tokyo Bullets. The Destruction Crew over Scott Norton in a handicap match. Paul Diamond over Kiyosato. Sheik Adnan over Greg Gagne by DQ. And Larry Zbysko over Sergeant Slaughter. Fuck that show. That show sounds hard. <laughs> All right, we got a uh, on the AWA today, but that's that's some fucking awful shit. <laughs> we got Continental show here from the National Guard Army in Greenville, Tennessee. Hey. Doctor Tom Pritchett went to a draw with Nightmare Danny Davis. Ooh, classic opening match. Yeah, this is a hell of a looking show here. Dennis Condry over Don the Stomper Harris. Adrian Street went to a double count with Terrence Garvin. Jimmy Golden over Wendell Cooley and. The Southern Boys, Tracy Smith and Steve Armstrong over Robert Fuller in primetime, Brian Lee by disqualification. Hell of a card. Fun looking show. And Cross State and for the CWA in Nashville, Sports Arena. We got, oh, here we go. This is interesting. <laughs> Lou Fabiano over Gary Albright by disqualification. And then our next match. I I am corrected. Nightmare Freddy beat Headbanger Ed. By disqualification. So, yes, Ed actually did work a match in the CWA. Wow. There it is. Amazing. Cousin Junior over Chris Champion. What a travesty. <laughs> Ricky Morton over Mark Starr by disqualification. Mm. Master Payne over Dutch Mantel. And your main event, Bill Dundee and Dustin Rhodes went to a double disqualification with Black Bart and Dirty White Boy Tony Anthony. Man, those Dustin Rhodes build on D matches with Bart and Tony Anthony were so good. They'd always have clips of them in those music videos for the Dirty White Boys and Dustin. Yeah, yeah, those were great matches. And on, I'll say this: underneath, same thing with Dutch and Master of Pain. Dutch Mantel and Master of Pain had a lot of really good matches. And I think uh, Mark Calloway always, you know, credits Dutch for really helping them along. Those they had some good ones. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. As we continue on here, we got a interesting show here in Utica, New York, at the Memorial Auditorium. Mm. Barry Windham destroyed uh, Terry Daniels. Yep, the Widowmaker Barry Windham. Rip Martell over Coco Beware. Jimmy Snuka over Barry Horowitz. Mr. Perfect over Big Steel Man. Mm. Yes, Uncle Fred doing the Big Steel Man gimmick at a house show. Oh, <laughs> uh, Uncle Fred. Yeah. Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Hibbley Jim over Andre the Giant and Haku. Mm. Jimmy Snooker doing double duty over Honky Tonk Man by Countout. Brutus over Savage and ultimately over Rick Rue by disqualification. That sounds like a really long show, but I'll bet you it was a lot more fun than that AWA show. <laughs> and last but not least, from the National Guard Army in Woodbury, New Jersey, we have Larry Winters over The Terminator, Cheetah Kid over Mike Kalua. Nice. Cheetah Kid being Ted Petty, Rocco Rock. Misty Blue over Cat LaRue in the Rob Naylor match. 
Mike, Iron Mike Sharp over Tom Brandy. Bam Bam Bigelow over somebody named the Assassin. In your main event, Kid Patera over Nikolai Volkup by disqualification. Oof. Your results sent in by Jim Mullina, future ECW referee. Oh, there you go. Nice card. That'd yeah. probably be a Dennis Corluzo show, way it looks. Yeah, I assume so. That would have been a show I'd have gone to if I lived closer to Philadelphia. Yes, yes. All right. And to close out, we have the Wrestling Inquirer here. All right, we got the top headline. AWA introduces Team Wrestling. Revolutionary concept will feature top stars in new format. By Dave Rosenbaum. And uh, effort to boost sagging rays and revitalize arena attendance. The AWA plans to introduce a Team Challenge Series this fall. Three teams, each comprised of 11 wrestlers, shows from a blind draw, will compete weekly for points. Series will be on AWA's TV affiliates. Different types of matches will be held every week. Feature representatives from three teams. And in the year, the top two teams will compete in a $1 million tournament. It's a thrilling new concept, said AWA President Joe Blanchard. We're looking at something that can bring wrestling to the 21st century. It's only proper the AWA should lead the way. This isn't only exciting for us, the wrestlers and the TV stations. It's running for the fans, too. The AWA is playing special contests in which fans represented by wrestlers can win prizes. There will also be weekly call-in polls. Fans may even have the opportunity to decide upon close matches don't even reach a clear finish. According to plans, Team Challenge Series will incorporate four pay-per-view events and one home video-only car, which will be the first in wrestling history. Right. The AWA will proceed with the series if it can clear 70% of its local TV markets. We're yep. doing a Patreon series on this now, Rob, and man, this when we did the stuff going over this on Between the Between Sheets Patreon series, all these details about what their plans were, and it's like, me and Bix were like, well, what a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> yeah, none of that ever happened. That shit sucked. Was that all, did they also do the pink room? Was that like what that was too? Yes, that was Team Challenge series, correct. He says, yeah. Very weird, no, no fans. Nothing. Even even talking about how uh, what you just read, I read too in 1989. I was very excited, and then just seeing how fucking piss poor it was, I was just like, oh, you just. It, I like the idea of the concept to help you know re-energize a promotion, but the execution of all of it was just so fucking awful. It was bad. Who was the booker then? Uh, Greg. Huh. Greg Gagne. There you go. So he invented the NWO, what, six years later? Oh, forget it. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. Also, in the headlines, we got into Inoki getting elected to the Japanese House of Counselors. Ronnie Garvin reinstated as a wrestler by the WWF. Mm. Ronnie Garvin, had, Bill After says, Ronnie Garvin had been shown that he can't help but be a biased referee, has been allowed to return to wrestling by WWF President Jack Tunney. After several wrestlers complained to Tunney about Garvin's officiating the man that he'd be uh, re- reinstated to come back to wrestling. What? What? How did you feel about the Ronnie Garvin? Oh, I was fucking furious. Like I got mad with you just reading it there. Like I was so angry because like I think one of the magazines ran a story after it all happened. I was mad enough anyway, but the story basically was my thoughts. It's like. This guy was the former NWA champion literally a year ago, and now he's just a fucking referee in, like, WWF, and I was just so pissed. Oh, it was like, why would you take a world champion and just make him a referee? I I didn't like it at all. Now I could look back on it maybe and see it as, like, a a kind of cool angle to keep Ronnie Garvin busy if they didn't really have plans for him. But as a kid, uh uh-uh, I did not like this one fucking bit. I was furious. 
because I like yeah. Garvin. Ronnie Garvin wasn't even my favorite by any means, but like he was still the guy that knocked Dusty out <laughs> and like left the NWA and after he got destroyed by Dusty in a street fight. So then like I remember thinking, well, okay, maybe since he got destroyed, he's not as good as he used to be. But uh, then, you know, he had those matches with Greg Valentine, the hammer jammer and all that shit. It was kind of fun. But the referee thing was just awful. Yeah, it was entertaining for a little bit, and then it just got grew tiresome. Absolutely. And the Rock and Rolls are back again. Stu Sachs writes that the Rock and Roll Express is rocking again as Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson reform their team, and uh, they're feuding with the Blackbirds, who offered them $5,000 that they couldn't beat them in 10 minutes. And then after the 10-minute draw happened, Wildside came out and helped the Blackbirds beat down the Rock and Roll Express. And... Uh, Morton said, this won't be the end of us. Me and Robert are sitting together until we run these damn blackbirds out of town. So, uh, basically, this leads to a three-way feud between those two, three teams and the babyface turn for a wild tie out of it. But uh, Blackbirds were fucking awesome. Uh, Harold, Harold T. Harris. Harold T. Harris, and yeah, Brickhouse and Iceman. And here's one. It might not be the picture in that book, but uh, the blackbirds had the zebra tights, but they had black like the base of the tights were black and they had the white stripes, which I thought was a fucking really cool looking design. So like, yeah, I, I was a big fan of the Blackbirds. I think Iceman Parsons in almost every way is very underrated. He's high impact, could talk his ass off, you know, just got over as a good guy or bad guy. I, I, oh, yeah. I, he had to just been difficult to work with. Like, I, I can't think of any <laughs> other reason. No, I, I really just can't think of any other reason why he never made well, it. He said, have you ever seen a shoot interview? Oh, well, I never listened to a shoot interview because the miking on it was so low that, like, I think, I blew, out, I, think I blew out speakers on my TV trying to hear what he was saying. But, uh, he didn't put up with no shit from promoters. Oh, well, there you go. Because he, I mean, he grew up working for the greatest, like you said, the greatest promoter ever, Paul Bosch. So he knew how promoters were supposed to handle business. Mm. He didn't take no shit. There it is. See, I never knew that. Good to hear. But I do, right, we do Iceman Parsons got a bigger push. All right, we do we do have one more thing to talk about. Let's close out with a PWI poll. And we have six questions here. So let's get your uh, your thoughts on this. All right, question number one. Was letting the Flair Funk match continue a good decision at the Grimmaker Bash? Yes, because Ray Iannucci should have never stopped Luger and Flair at the Bash 88 anyway. <laughs> Oh my God, Ray Iannucci! There's no reason I should know Ray Iannucci. Like even when I say it, I think of like Capetta saying it. Ray (laughs) Iannucci stops the match. I'm like, what? It's not right. Fuck Ray Iannucci. I wonder if he's still alive. If he is, I'm not really that mad at you, Ray Iannucci. I was just really upset as a kid. Him, he's probably dead. And him and Frank Talon are up above, like laughing and joking. Yes, buying each other some shots. Are the Brain Busters the Rifle WF Tag Champions? Oh, of course. Because they, they, they going over that, you know, the two out three falls match with Demolition. Oh, yeah, and they blasted the dude in the head with the steel chair and won. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, I heard that he really fucked uh, Smash up with that chair shot, by the way. Yeah. Like, it, well, looked every, I, it looked every bit of violent, but I guess Smash did a shoot interview and he said that Tully really although maybe it's just old school guys protecting themselves which could be i like that a lot too 
But Smash always claims that Tully just fucked his day up with that chair shot. Because, like, he was out, too. Like, that was one of the... They put them over hard, even with the chair shot, you know? Like, he was... He sold... Like, he was dead. And real quick, I, I gotta get the results. Uh, Flare Funk was 86% yes. And Brain Brothers was 59% yes. Hmm, there you go. All right. Should a title change hands by DQ or Countout? No. <laughs> yes, 48%. No, 42%. Come on. Undecided, 10%. Come on. All right. Should promoters be allowed to waive the rules? Yes. Yes, 31%. No, 45%. Undecided, 24%. Hmm. Should there be one set of rules for all wrestling promotions? Oh, God, no. <laughs> yes, 71%. Wow. No, 12%. Undecided, 12 Pile drivers banned everywhere. <laughs> Nobody can go off the top rope. Ever. Could you imagine that? Oh. I man. I don't want to imagine. I like all my different flavors of sling ice cream. And your last question. So state commissions help write the rules of wrestling. <laughs> um, I, I can imagine 11-year-old Rob looking at that and being like, wait, what? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say no. <laughs> all right. Yes, 23%. No, 60%. Undecided, 15%. The fact that 23% said yes troubles me. Yeah, yeah. So that's the end of our issue, and of course our issue was bookended by another ad for the wrestling ring featuring the 1989 action figures of Ultimate Warrior, Big Boss Man, Ravishing Rude, the Warlord in black tights with no knee pads, King Haku does not come with a crown, Andre the Giant, Brutus Beefcake, and Big John Stud. Do you remember the ad in the magazines that it was like a blow-up wrestler guy? Where it was like a big, it wasn't a pillow, but like you could. Yeah, well, there's one in this one for sponges. You remember that? <laughs> no, yeah, I just uh, remember Captain Sponge Fun says Sponge Fun's wrestling is here. Like the in the the, the one that's like Ric Flair is named Dick Dare. S Sponge Fun Wrestling sounds like a whole different fucking magazine. Uh, so I'm gonna say this: <laughs> the blow up, the blow up wrestling doll, which is now like the least offensive thing I could say. Uh, the, the blow up wrestling doll did look intriguing to me as a kid. Like you just put air in this motherfucker and slam it around, but I'm sure it would just bust immediately and not be cool. But I just I remember there was like this doll that you could like wrestle with, and it was like life size, like bigger than me as a kid size, clearly. So. I just thought that was a cool idea, but yeah, I never got it or anything. <laughs> just saying. There you go. There you go. All right. That's it for this show. Next show, we'll be back, and Rob will have his magazine that he'll uh, pick out of his collection. And, we'll and next time, I'm going to let you know right now, everybody, as a cliffhanger, I'm going to go for, I'm going to try to find an early 80s magazine. I'm going to try to find either early 80s or the latest 84, 85. But we're going to go earlier era so we can just change it up. Be interesting. All right. Yes. Sounds great to me. And, uh, hell, I may go earlier than that on my next pick. Who knows? We'll see. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Can't wait for that, folks. So we'll be back in a week or two with the next show. So be on the lookout for that. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. This was a wonderful trip down 1989 memory lane. Yeah, one of our most favorite years in wrestling history, no doubt. So we'll see you next time. So for Rob, this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.